Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shadow. Had journeyed long. What's that all about? Just a poem, one of Johnny Diamond's favorites. Let's see. Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shadow. Had journeyed long, singing a song in search of El Dorado. Howdy, everyone. Pull up a chair, kick up your boots, take a sip on a nice cold drink. It's Elder Pado, Season 3 of Support Your Local Podcast, where we take a look at your 1966 John Wayne classic, El Dorado, one chapter at a time. I'm your host, as always, Robert Smith, coming to you from beautiful Tombstone. Yes, that one. Today, we'll be taking a look at Chapter 6, The Drunken Sheriff. Uh, but before we do that, let's take a moment and take a bit of a deeper dive into one of our cast and crew, uh, this time the titular drunken sheriff, uh, in a segment that I like to call, Remember the Name. You don't remember me, do you? No. You remember this hat? Well, why in the hell would I remember a hat? <laughs> So today, welcome to Remember the Name. I'm, uh, I'm always excited to do this segment and kind of take a look at some of the movies and some of the career of the folks that are in our, our movies. But uh, uh, this season, there's, there's two in particular that I'm super excited to get into, and this is one of them. Uh, today, we're going to be doing Mr. Robert Mitchum, uh, J.P. Hera in, in our movie El Dorado. Uh, Mr. Mitchum, uh, born in 1917. He did pass in 1997. Uh, he did get his career started in 1942, and from 42 to 44, he did, you know, 25 small uncredited roles, you know, just trying to get his foot in the door in regards to Hollywood. It wasn't until 1944 with Nevada that he would get his first leading role as Bob Mitchum. Uh, credited name, not he, he didn't get to play Bob Mitchum in the, in the movie. Uh, 1945, one of his first bigger roles is uh, The Story of G.I. Joe. And then he did pretty much two to four movies every year uh, throughout the 40s and 50s. You know, we talked about these guys from this era, you know, when we did uh, Support Your Local Sheriff, that they just did so many movies within a short amount of time. It seemed like they were doing three and four movies per year. And that's just so different from what we're used to now, you know, with these big blockbusters and especially like the Marvel movies, where it takes over a year just to do a movie. Um, these guys were cranking them out, you know, one after the other. Uh, 1955, the next one that pops up on my, my list is The Night of the Hunter. And I was admittedly ignorant to this movie up until a couple years ago. And I was watching Bravo's uh, 100 Scariest Moments in Movie History. It was during Halloween time. They had a countdown of some of the scariest moments. And I saw this pop up there. And I had never heard of it. I'd never seen it. Uh, but when they showed us, like, holy shit, that's, that's Robert Mitchum in this role. And he plays this creepy bad guy very, very, very well. And I've gone on to, to watch the movie. And if you ever get a chance to check it out, definitely do. It's a very surreal type movie. It's, it's almost in the vein of like the old school Draculas and the setting of where like you can almost see this done as a stage play easily. Uh, but definitely check that out. 
1962, uh, we have Cape Fear, uh, the original one, not not the the one with uh, Martin Scorsese and Robert Downey or Robert Downey, geez, uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, he played Max Cady. He played the lead bad guy in the original Cape Fear. Uh, also, 1962, The Longest Day, and this is where I am super excited to talk about Mr. Mitchum. So. My dad, uh, you guys have heard all about my dad. He's the reason we do the podcast. He's the reason I do these movies. Uh, but my dad was in the army and he was stationed over in Europe, uh, Germany and France uh, during during the, the 60s, I guess, early 60s. And he always talked about The Longest Day being one of his favorite movies. The reason being is he's in it. And as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. You know, oh, cool, dad's in a movie, but no. So during some of the the soldier marches and, and the the scenes that they show, like the, the actual squadrons moving and all that stuff, I guess according to my dad, that was his unit that they 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 were filming uh, when they did those those scenes. And he claimed uh, all through his life that he uh, he always he Robert Mitchum. Uh, borrowed a pair of boots from him. He got, to, he got to actually meet Robert Mitchum, and you know, I I can't prove or deny that. I don't have any you know evidence of it, but it was always a great story, and it was one that my dad always told um, and always raved about that movie. He always loved it because he was in it. Uh, so hey, hey, Dad, I love you. I got to tell your story. Um, nineteen sixty seven, uh, the Way West. And then also in 1967, the movie that we're, it says 67, but it was 66, depending on where you look at it, uh, is El Dorado, the movie that we're going over right now, where he plays the drunken sheriff, uh, the titular character of our, our chapter today. Uh, 1969, uh, Young Billy Young. 1973, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. 1978, uh, The Big Sleep. And let's see, 1988, uh, Scrooged where he plays Preston Rhinelander. He plays the the top TV executive for the channel IBC that Bill Murray's character works for. And, you know, those that already know, you know I love Scrooged. Uh, go back in the archives, check out my, my eight movies that I have to watch every year, and I'm getting excited because we're in that time of year again right now as, as this is uh, being released. Um, but uh, I, I always watched Scrooge, and I always saw him, and I was like, I know that guy. Where do I know that guy? And I could never place it um, up until a few years ago when you know the internet became a big thing and IMDb became a big thing. I just finally looked him up, and holy shit, it's J.P. Hera. Like I loved J.P. Hera from El Dorado. I loved Preston from Scrooge. I never really knew that it was the same guy. Um, so yeah, just a little side note there. Uh, 1991, uh, the remake of Cape Fear, the Martin Scorsese version, um, starring Robert De Niro as Max Cady. Awesome movie. If you ever get a chance to see it, awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, if you ever wondered where the 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 sideshow Bob uh, memes and uh, episodes with where he's hunting down Bart came from, pulls a lot from this version of Cape Fear. Uh, but Robert Mitchum reprised a role, uh, or didn't reprise it because it's not the same guy. But he was also in the remake, I should say, as uh, Lieutenant Elgert. Um, but is in the remake of the movie that he kind of made famous uh, playing the Max Cady role. And then finally, 1993, Tombstone, uh, he is the narrator. So as he's telling the story of Wyatt Earp in the beginning and the end, um, that was actually Robert Mitchum's voice uh, throughout that. But a whole lot of other movies in there. Definitely go check those out. There's just one of the ones that kind of stood out to me. I wanted to tell everybody the longest day story. So love you, Dad. Uh, but this has been Remember the Name. Hey, uh, 
I suppose I've asked this before, but just who, who is he? Tell him your name, Mississippi. Alan Bedillion Traherne. Well, no wonder he carries a knife. And we're back. Uh, we left off last chapter with everyone watching to see if J.P. Harrow was going to turn into a ghoul. Uh, you know, they'd given him the zombie go-go juice. Uh, let's see what happens with that. But we start this chapter with it being morning, and there's a group of riders coming into town passing the blacksmiths. And there are four of them. And as they pull off to the side, we cut to inside the jail where Mississippi is keeping watch through the front door. Cole's pacing the floor, kind of like an expectant father in the waiting room back in those days. And when James Conn alerts Cole, he takes a look for himself outside the window. We, we cut back to the riders kicking up dust and stopping in front of a building as a, a wagon goes riding by. And it serves to work as the cut mechanism for the shot. And we see that one of the riders getting off his horse is none other than Bart Jason himself. Uh, Bart glares over in what must be the direction of the jail. We don't really know the logistics of everything just yet. And he then walks into the uh, saloon. And the sign above the door indicates no time for branding in the Old West. It just says saloon. You know, people just need to know exactly what they were walking into should they pick that door, I guess, question mark. Um Cole walks from the window to the other side of the office and he wakes up Bull, who's now sleeping on a bed in the corner. And I admit I had to go back to a previous chapter to look because I I didn't remember there being a bed in that room. Um, I would guess that the setup is just for Bull. You know, otherwise, why would JP choose to live in the jail cell, I guess? Uh, it, it is a nice touch that Bull's sleeping during the day, given he was on the night shift the previous night. And, um, you know, that said, screw Cole Thornton, just, just to throw that out there. So as a former third shifter for many, many years, and one, especially during this time of year, it's, it's Thanksgiving time. If you're hearing this, it's almost black or it had just been Thanksgiving. Um, I can tell you that I'm sure Bull wouldn't give two shits if the apocalypse was happening outside that door. As long as he was still able to get his sleep, oh, you know, Bart Jason's in town. Good for him. How about you and the kid with the funny hat take care of it while I have dreams of Maudie, asshole? Cole even compounds my fury when Bull asks if they should wake up the sheriff. You know, the guy whose shift it actually is. To which Cole replies, nah, let him sleep. You know, the guy who was sleeping when you got there last night, slept throughout the night, that guy? No, it's it's okay. I'm I'm just running on coffee, two hours of sleep, and by the look of Bowl's frame, cigarettes and jerky. You know, I'll be fine. It's okay. Um, another group of writers come in, and this time the McDonald's. Uh, pa sends the, the women folk over to do the shopping as, as he and the men folk uh, pull up to the saloon and lodging across the street from the, the just saloon. And Bull comes back in the door, wiping the dust off of him with a handkerchief. And it's, it's a nice touch to have the entire doorway and window showing a cloud of dust from the incoming traffic. And you know, I wonder if this was as simple as someone with a big fan blowing dust around, or if in fact, like that 
building or that set led out into the actual street of the town at Old Tucson Studios. I'm not I'm not sure the the logistics of everything with that. Um, Cole suggests both stick around with the McDonald's while he and Mississippi stay there and watch the Bart Jason group, which again, no, no, it's okay. You stay here. I'll go work. Asshole. We, we cut to Mississippi fanning out some playing cards before starting to play solitaire. And I guess to reinforce the fact that he was raised on a riverboat by a gambler, it literally, literally never comes back up in the movie. Not once. He he never needs to use his card playing skills to win the deed to the mine. Nothing, nothing like that. It's I don't know if it's just a callback to Rio Bravo, where the Angie Dickinson character was was playing with the cards. I I don't know. I, I don't know why it needs to be there. All the doors and windows are shuttered now, and the lamps are on, so it must be night? Question mark. So it makes me wonder just how long poor Bowles been carrying bags of groceries for the McDonald's out there? Question mark. JP comes stumbling out of the jail cell and Cole says hello, to which the sheriff just mildly acknowledges her. Cole moves a little closer and says, can you see a bit better from here? To which the drunken fog lifts enough for JP to recognize and, and actually acknowledge him as Cole. And he asks how long Cole had been here and... Did they have a fight or something? To which the Duke looks at his knuckles and says, or something. JP just kind of chuckles and he stumbles over to his desk where, where Mississippi's sitting. And this act of not needing to say anything more about the fight was interesting. You know, I'm I'm thinking it's kind of like a brother's thing, you know. They they fought so many times over the years that it's it's never personal. They just move on without an apology, whether it's needed or, or not. And JP starts rifling through his desk drawers as Cole makes him a cup of coffee instead. And JP asks why he's there. And when Cole answers he's waiting for Nelson McLeod, JP admits knowing about him, indicating, oh, the one with the... And then he uses his finger to imply a, a scar over his cheek, to which, you know... That's Scarist. Nels said that he, he wanted Cole to work for him, just a, a range war that needed a drunken sheriff taken care of. And JP once again turns down the coffee and continues to search the wardrobe next to the bed. Cole tells him that he turned down the job, which JP looks relieved and a bit surprised, which I found interesting, you know, because did he think things had changed since the last time that Cole told him he turned down the Bart Jason job? It's literally the same job, only this time he would be under Nels, who's under Bart. So in theory, it'd even be a lesser job with less pay. Cole tells him he, he won't find any booze there because he told Bull to throw it all away. And you see some great deflated reactions from JP. He yells at Cole that no, he doesn't want any coffee. He wants a drink and he's got to have it to which Cole tells him to go, go get one then. And after looking around for his hat, Mississippi finally asks if this beat up dirty one on the desk is his. And he claims it's not, but I'm not sure whose it would be. And it, it perfectly matches the dishevelment of the sheriff's outfit. So I think maybe that's just a point of pride of not admitting he's let his hat go so, so far. Um, he asks once again, who Mississippi is? So, bing, 
add one to the scoreboard. He takes the hat and he goes storming off into what we can now confirm is the night. And we cut to the outside where the sheriff, half drunk, half macho, uh, marches across the street to the Just Saloon, not to be confused with the saloon and lodging, and goes inside. We see the street is fairly sparse, and the saloon itself is not exactly hopping. You know, there, there are a few folks at the front tables, an empty kind of what appears to be a faro table, I think, and a few others just sitting around drinking beer and, and listening to the, the ragtime piano playing. The sheriff walks up to the bar and he orders a whiskey, and we cut to a table in the back where Bart Jason, his foreman, and another gentleman are playing poker, and the foreman points out the sheriff to, to Jason. The bartender, who we'll, we'll talk about in just a second, goes to pour a shot of whiskey, to which an insulted sheriff pushes the glass away and says, what the hell, Bill, I'm, I'm a grown-ass man, and a grown-ass man can drink an entire bottle all by himself, or something to that effect. Uh, I had the volume down because of the kids. He says something like that. The, the bartender says it'll take him a moment because he'll have to fill a bottle up, and here's my ignorance showing, I'm sure. Doesn't the bar have overstock bottles in stock for when this bottle runs out? Or does he have a bathtub full of whiskey somewhere and they just fill the bottle as they go? You know, it's like a prohibition era type thing. Because this isn't prohibition. We, we cut to the outside and we see Cole in Mississippi peeking through the office door as McLeod and his gang finally roll into town. And in case the audience was curious... Cole even tells Mississippi that that's McLeod, to which, you know, no shit. I, I was there with you in the bar with Nels, remember? Cole, just saying, asshole. Um, we see McLeod enter the saloon, the Just Saloon, uh, with four other gentlemen. So apologies to the Duke for questioning his counting skills in an earlier episode. Of those four, we see Milt and Pedro. And the other two are, I assume, as we're now an hour or so into the movie, um, unnamed cannon fodder for the Duke and JP later on. They walk on past the sheriff at the bar, not even batting an eye in his direction, while walking towards Jason's table. And Jason greets them. He says, this is a great time to introduce him to the sheriff, who's just coming in for his daily bottle, to which there's a, a scattering of laughter. And this is an amazing, embarrassing moment for the sheriff, and one that I think most people can relate to in some degree, you know, looking your worst and running into the one person that you'd hope wouldn't see you this way. Um, I know I've been there. I'm sure most of you probably have at some point. And at the chuckling, JP shifts his weight and goes for a gun that just isn't there on his hip. So... Had JP been wearing his gun, would he truly have drawn right then? I mean, best case scenario, he gets a couple shots off, maybe even two of them taking out Jason and Nils. But even then, that's just plain murder, you know. Worst case scenario, well, you know, that is Nels McLeod. And we hear he's pretty fast. And even so, there's eight guys at the table now. So Nels and his four, uh, Jason and his two. So last I checked, most revolvers in the Old West were called six shooters for a reason. The numbers just don't add up in JP's favor. 
The, the bartender chuckles along with the whole crowd as he hands the sheriff the bottle of rye. Um, and, you know, now's a, a, as good time as any. I, I told you we'd talk about the bartender a, a few minutes ago. And fun fact, um, that is actually Robert Mitchum's real-life brother. So keep an eye on him in future episodes. He, he, will, he will serve a purpose, not just beer. The, the sheriff cradles the bottle, and he's trying to keep it out of sight, maybe. But uh, the embarrassment's already there, and even the people at the front tables are finding it humorous that their town's being you know, kept a law and order by the town drunk, which, as Maudie said earlier, you know, why? You know, this, this still is a place that has elections, right? You know, we're not, we're not in a, a, a dictatorship. Why, how is he still a sheriff? You know, if JP is as quick to the draw as he is quick to the draw, maybe there's still enough intimidation there to keep people from upsetting him at the polls, maybe? The sheriff exits, and he gets about halfway across the street, cuddling his bottle from sight when he sees Cole standing in the office door, you know, a a look of pity and and half-disgust on his face. And this leads JP to at least stand up straight and put the bottle by his side with, you know, with what little pride he has left as, as a man, you know, not allowing him to look like this in front of his compatriot. And he stumbles his way back into the office and he sulks back towards his cell before stopping and almost in tears tells Cole, you know, that they laughed at me right in front of McLeod. They laughed at me and... The Duke, still still stern, kind of like a mother hen, he, he gives him the unfortunate truth. And that's that they've been laughing at him for months. You know, he's just been too drunk to notice. And this finally riles the anger in JP and he smashes his bottle to the floor. He grabs his gun belt and apparently he's ready to finish what his hand tried to start back in the bar. As he's mumbling, I'll show them, his gun falls out of the holster while he's putting on the belt. And as he sheepishly goes to grab it, we hear gunshots ring outside. And then we hear the unmistakable trumpet sounds of Bull. As, you know, the three of them freeze before realizing what that meant. You know, like, come on, guys, it means Bull is coming. Don't you remember? The, the Duke in Mississippi go storming to the door to the rescue as JP continues to have issues getting his gun belt on. And he hollers, wait for me, to which the Duke stops at the door just to mainly and, and frankly state, why? And that's where we end our scene with just that. We, we get a nice shot of the wanted posters hanging by the door. And the most noticeable is wanted for stagecoach robbery. Um, Barney Stevens and a $1,000 reward. And I did get, I did get a quick look and the, the only Barney Stevens info I saw was for an episode of Rugrats. So pretty sure not the same guy that they're referencing, which that would be a deep, deep, deep cut. If somebody in Rugrats, uh, was referencing a wanted poster in El Dorado, that would be amazing. Uh, but what happens next? You know, did JP end, uh, end up paying for that bottle before he left? Will the sheriff ever get his gun belt on? Did Bull get tired of watching them shop and shoot them himself? Find out this and more when we return next time with Elder Pado. But until then, as always, check us out on Facebook and Instagram, folks. We are at Support Your Local Podcast. 
please take the time to like and follow us there. And if you have a free moment, something that is absolutely free to you, but it can help me out a great deal with is rating and reviewing us on whatever podcatcher you find us on. But until we meet again, folks, you know, I love you and please, please, please support your local podcast. And when his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be? This land called El Dorado. Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Ride, boldly ride, the shade replied. You search for El Dorado.